Well, I used to ask the youth group this question, or at different times I would just bring up this question. Which religion is the hardest to live out? It makes you think about different religions and different belief systems, and it makes and forces you to think. Pastor Ralph pointed out last week that um, there are about 613 Old Testament laws that have been categorized and put together by the rabbis and religious leaders of the Jewish faith. And in order to be a good Jew, you must recognize these laws, even down to obeying the Sabbath, even to thinking about what exactly is work. And so there's, there's a lot of work. There's dietary laws and different holidays. Or you could think of, of a religion like Islam, keeping the five pillars. Even their prayer life is, is very, you, you must be very devout if you want to be a, a good Muslim. They pray five times a day. They, the first prayer is right before sunrise, the last one after sunset, and three throughout the day. There are also things like ritual fasting, giving away a portion of one's wealth, and a pilgrimage to, to Mecca. Or, some of you have, were, have grown up in the Catholic religion, where good works is definitely highlighted in order to be a good Catholic. Not a nominal Catholic, right? Because a lot of people call themselves Catholic, yet maybe they go to, to church once a week or sometimes just during the holidays or whatever. But throughout the week, they're not really trying to live out their faith. To be a good Catholic, you've got to do good works, do good things, you must check your, 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 your life and make sure that you don't have sin. If you do sin, you go, you confess that to the priest, and then do penance to make yourself right with God. It's all based on good works. You observe the sacraments and do things of that nature. We know that with different, with different religious systems, there is a lot to do, a lot of good works. Then we come to Christianity, and for the sake of argument, we will call this a religion. We know that following Christ is so much more than just a system of rules, but in Matthew eleven twenty eight to 30, Jesus says, come, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now these words were especially meaningful to a society that had been weighed down by legalistic religious leaders. They were overburdened, and Jesus' words were words of comfort, not just to them, but even to us. But does this really settle the case? Yeah, Christianity is the easiest to live out. Except, you have to consider this. I would like to argue that in order to follow Christ... Or let me say that following Christ is the most difficult thing to do. Why do I say this? Well, let me just uh, jump back to a portion of scripture, and I'm not going to read the whole thing, but Jesus says, I have not come to abolish the law, but to, to, but to fulfill them. And later on in the passage, as, as Pastor Ralph pointed out last week, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of God. There were none that observed the law more strictly than the scribes and the Pharisees, and yet Jesus 
as was mentioned last week, was raising the righteousness bar. He was calling out the, the Pharisees who who he referred to as whitewashed tombs because on the outside they looked great, but they were dead on the inside. So while they never committed murder, they harbored bitterness and they falsely accused Jesus and, and they held to, to, to their law so strictly that, that they were harboring these ill feelings to those, to those who weren't keeping it. So while their hands were not bloodstained, we know that their heart was was full of, of, of hate and of murder. And, and so, when, when we talk about the, the hardest religious system to follow, I'll say this, that while other religions demand great works, Jesus demands something even greater from us. He demands our hearts. Now, we can look impressive to others, around us by faithfully attending and getting involved in church. We can do things so that people on the outside can say, this person is a really good Christian. We can be faithful givers, even have a heart for the poor. We can be committed to never physically harming other people. We can save sex for marriage. And yet all of those things, which are very admirable and commanded by God, fall short if our hearts contradict our actions. See, the problem with our hearts is that only two people can see them. You and God. So we can try to fool other people, but God knows the truth. And I believe that purifying our hearts is the hardest thing to do on this earth. Now, I want us to take a closer look at our hearts this morning. But before I do that, I want to open up with a word of prayer. Oh Lord, we pray that as we open up this passage of Scripture in Matthew 5, that you would give us deep insight conviction, a tender heart toward you and toward others, Lord, who are struggling with these things. We thank you that you are faithful to to us, Lord. Pray these things in your name. Amen. Now, I've been asked this morning to address the topic of the silent killer known as sexual sin. It is an assassin that has targeted and taken out a great many of God's people for thousands of years as you open up the word of God. You see it. You see people like Solomon, who could not have enough women. You see Samson, who was so weakened by women. You see David, who fell into sin with Bathsheba. And interestingly enough, um, David and Samson are both mentioned in Hebrews 11 as having great faith. In fact, David was known as a man who was... A man after God's own heart. And if David needed to check his heart, if David could fall, how much more do we need to to be checking our own hearts? Well, we know that the scribes and the Pharisees did not have their hearts in check. That was the whole reason why Jesus was was highlighting them. We talked about their, their shallow faith, noting last week that it's, it's, it was really only a skin-deep thing. Once again, Jesus addresses this outward righteousness with the words that cut straight to the heart in Matthew 5, 27 to 30. Let's look at that passage right now. Verse 27, you have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Verse 
If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than you throw your whole, than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Now, I'd like to break down this passage into three parts this morning. First of all, the familiar, the familiar law, all right? Secondly, the unfamiliar interpretation. And thirdly, the unpopular application. So let's start with the familiar law. Uh, in verse 27, Jesus says, You have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. Now, of course, they've heard this before. It's part of the Ten Commandments. It's the seventh, to be exact. Exodus 20.14 says, You shall not commit adultery. And it was not taken lightly. It was actually, it was actually something that, that the Mosaic Law spoke very harshly about. Leviticus 20.10 says, If a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall be put to death. That's how harshly it was looked at. Deuteronomy 22.22 says, If a man is found lying with the wife of another man, both of them shall die, the man who lay with the woman and the woman. So you shall purge the evil from Israel. Now, God has a very high standard for holiness. We know this. And he did not want this sin to spread amongst his people, the nation that he was forming as his very own. He wanted to keep them holy. See, holiness is that important to God. We read that and we breathe a sigh of relief, right? Because we're not bound by the Mosaic law. But we find so much freedom in God's grace. And I think that we still believe that adultery is a sin. And there are people here that have never cheated on their spouse. And I want to say this. I, I love the rapper Lecrae. He is a guy who, who is the Christian rapper who is gaining a lot of popularity even amongst secular people. But he takes, he takes really strong stances when it comes to the word of God in his life. And in his song, his intro song in the Rebel album, he says this line. He says, your boy's got a wife and no, I never cheated. Interestingly enough, shortly after that, it was discovered that a couple of other prominent Christian rappers um, had to step down because of indiscretion in their, mar- in their marriages. And though I don't believe Lecrae knew this and was putting this in his song to speak out against that, I think he was trying to take a stand. But here's the thing, though. Even though I appreciate what he had to say, and I know he's trying to say something that's very countercultural, I do fear one thing with this. Maybe not for him, but as we start to think about this, is that we can become arrogant about the places where we have not fallen. See, it's great to celebrate, but not great to accentuate. Not great to point at me and say, look, what I have or have not done. Why not? Because I believe this leads us to the second section of the passage, the unfamiliar interpretation. Verse 28 says this, But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. See, it's really hard, it's really hard to be prideful, to be all puffed up and arrogant 
about our marital fidelity when Jesus puts it this way. Because if you get all puffed up with the fact that you've never committed adultery, all the air is kind of let out when you realize what this commandment really means. It goes so much deeper. See, I entitled this message, Your Cheating Heart. Some of you didn't know I knew that song. I heard it on a commercial one time. But I thought it was appropriate here. It's not a foreshadowing. I'm not calling anybody out in, in their relationship with, with, other, with their spouse or anything like that. But rather, this goes deeper, goes to our heart and our relationship with God and how we are so quick to cheat on Him. The great hymn, Come Thou Fount, when speaking about the heart, says these, these words that really resonate with me. Prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. There, there's like a contradiction there. Leave the God I love. And yet we feel that pull toward the world. Something is just like pulling us away from God. We don't even understand it because some, we're, we're in the word of God and, and there are times when we're just soaking it in and God is speaking to us. We're encouraged. There are times when we're in church and it's, it's, we feel like God is speaking directly to us. It's sweet time of fellowship. And then at times we forget about that and we wander. David's infamous affair that resulted in two dead was heartbreaking. But David in Psalm 51, 3 and 4, as he's praying to God about his sin, says, For I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. We know that David's sin was against a lot more than, than just God. We know that it was against his baby that died, one of the casualties. Against Bathsheba, against Uriah, against many people, against Israel, as he was the king. of. But first and foremost, we have to recognize this. And this is real important for us to remember that it's first against God. Because if not, many times things just become skin deep like the Pharisees when your heart isn't checked before God. Jesus takes this familiar law and he gives it really unfamiliar interpretation. He, let's look at this deeper. He says, Jesus says, but I say to you, but I say to you. In other words, rabbinic tradition has interpreted this commandment one way, but now I am claiming higher authority, the way it was supposed to be taken. Because for some reason, the Pharisees and others had skipped the commandment, you should not covet your neighbor's wife or not desire your neighbor's wife or want her. Because I think those go hand in hand with adultery. They were seen as two very separate things. But Jesus is combining them and saying they're both of the same heart. He says, whoever looks at a woman with lustful intent. Now Jesus doesn't say, 
Whoever sees an immodest woman, or a scantily clad woman, or a woman dancing provocatively, that person has committed adultery. That's unavoidable too many times. We live in a very sexually driven culture, don't we? So sometimes we see things that we are not intending to see. David was not in sin when he saw Bathsheba initially. That was an accident. However, his sin was in his desire for her. That was intentional. Looking with lustful intent is to gaze and stare to fulfill the sinful desire in your own heart, in your own thoughts. And those things, especially unchecked in our hearts, will then, at some point, lead to action. We think, no, I've got this all under control. They will lead to action. Now, I know women here may feel like, oh, I'm a little bit off the hook here because this isn't really a sermon about me. This is a sermon about men. But in reality, women, I've learned, struggle with with some of the same things, maybe in a little bit of a different form. Maybe it's not the exact reasons or there, there's, there are things behind it that I don't fully um, understand, but I understand this, that Jesus is not speaking only to men here. Now, when we talk about lustful intent, what are some examples? Well, there's some obvious ones, right? Viewing adult entertainment in any form, or even listening, I guess. Consuming sexually driven entertainment. And I say that because sometimes we're like, ah, it's not pornography. But it's really sexually charged music. And it may not even be blatant, but we know the undertone. We know what this, what this, what this is getting at. Gazing at people with desire in our hearts. I'm not not just talking about staring at, at somebody or staring at their body, but, but really desiring that person for yourself, especially, uh, in the context of, of marriage. Wanting somebody else. I want to park real quickly um, on this topic of pornography. Now, we already know that a large number of men struggle with this in the world, not just in the world, but in the church, not just in the church, but amongst church leaders, right? That this has been a problem. It's well documented. It has no place. I'm not excusing it. It's, it's, it destroys, it kills. But I think that that men are very aware of this and I feel like over the last 10 years or so I see people really making an effort to address this issue amongst men. However, we never address the women concerning the topic of pornography. Probably because we think that it's not an issue that women deal with. But as I was going to, I came across this article in Christianity Today written by a a lady named Caitlin Beatty. The article is called Not Just a Guy Issue. She says this in the article, When pornography and women appear in the same sentence in Christian circles, the topic is usually pastors' wives or former porn stars. But for an estimated one in six women in the U.S., this is two years ago, the topic is themselves. Crystal Renault whose addiction started at age 10 after finding a magazine in her brother's bathroom, wants to dispel the idea that porn is only a men's problem. So Crystal Reno has this organization. Um, I, I believe it's called Dirty Girls Ministries. 
reaching out to, to women who are, who are trapped in, in the sin of pornography. The article then goes on to say, porn's effects are well chronicled and the alienation it, it, and shame it creates are no respecter of gender. Many count women out as porn addicts because they aren't known for being visually stimulated, Renault says. But as emotional beings, women often seek porn as a way to escape and receive a false sense of intimacy. Now, why do I bring this up? I only bring this up because I, I think what Satan loves to do is separate us when, when we're in sin. Make us believe we're the only one going through this particular sin. And the reason I bring this up is I believe that I could see how a woman struggling with this could believe I'm the only one that struggles with this. There are no other women that struggle with this. And so it's just a call for us as, as a body, and I'll talk about this a little bit more, to, to reach out and, and um, approach people lovingly when it comes to sin. There's two ungodly responses, though, when it, when it comes to this uh, dealing with sexual sin. First of all, pride, like I said before, those who puff out their chest because they don't struggle with it. Second is legalism, though. I think that people are okay for the most part, if you don't take that sin too far, if, you, if you're not having sex outside of marriage, for instance, maybe you're not viewing pornography, everything's fine. They don't want to know about the heart too much as long as you're doing, in their eyes, what looks to be right, they're happy. But here's the sobering reality. I like the way that John Owen puts it in his book, The Mortification of Sin. He says, every unclean thought or glance would be adultery if it could. In other words, if given the opportunity, we may go there. You see, this is not only important, this is God's will. 1 Thessalonians 4, 4, 1 through 8 says this. Finally, then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. So here lies the problem. Can we fulfill God's will and just live in sin? We see God's will is that we do not live in sexual immorality, but we do something about it. We attack it. We separate ourselves from what the world does. Now, we don't know always exactly how to live this out. And this leads us to our last point. The unpopular application. Verse 29, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. 
And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. The application is not only unpopular, but it also almost seems inconsistent with what Jesus is saying. Jesus says that it's a heart issue, but now he's giving kind of physical solution. Gouge out your eye. Cut off your hand. And, and is there a sense here that you could lose your salvation? What is Jesus talking about? Well, I believe that, that this is very figurative language, obviously. Jesus is not calling us to cut off our hands and gouge out our eyes. We'd, we'd have to, right? We'd, we'd have to gouge them out and... and uh, we'd be bumping into each other. Um, but, because we couldn't hold the walking sticks without hands. But, the application though, I think it's figurative. And I don't believe that we are, he's talking about a salvation thing here. I think he's mentioning the severity of this, of this problem. He's speaking in a very grotesque language because it's a very grotesque sin. Makes it clear that those caught in sexual sin must take extreme measures to kill it. Now, in order to kill the sin, we must not confuse it with the symptoms. Okay, there are symptoms, things that our sin produces. For instance, pornography is a symptom of the deeper issue, but it's not the main issue itself. Adultery, the same thing. Fornication, masturbation, inappropriate emotional relationships, all of these very things that, that can enslave a person, these are the symptoms of the greater sin. So let's, for sake of argument, let's say somebody is dealing with all of these things. And let's say we get that person to stop doing all of these things. That's great, and that's necessary to deal with the heart. But if we don't deal with the heart, then we didn't go all the way. It's not a matter of, all right, that person was struggling with porn. No more. He's, no. What about his heart? Now, I have um, an illustration here that, that I want to bring out. It's the story of a, of a guy named Aaron Ralston. Now, that may be a name that you're not familiar with, but you've heard of his accident. You see, I heard about his accident back in 2003, then I saw the movie based on his, on his story in 2010. The movie is called 127 Hours, and it's not for the faint of heart. On April 26, 2003, Aaron was hiking in, in the Blue John Canyon in Utah. But here's the thing. He didn't tell anybody where he was going. Why? Because he was very experienced. Hiking, climber, rappelling, caving, whatever. He's very experienced. So he didn't feel the need to tell anybody. So he went there for the weekend, thought he would do this, come back. He didn't have any way to contact him on like a phone or anything. And so when he went missing, nobody knew where to look for him at. He told nobody. While climbing down a slot canyon, a boulder became dislodged and pinned his right, his right arm against the canyon wall. This was an 800-pound boulder. It was unmovable. Now, he resigned himself to death, drinking the last of his water and eating the last of his food. Over a period of five days, 
And this is kind of how the five days broke down. For the first three days, he tried desperately to move the boulder with his left hand, or maybe, I, I don't know all, all that he tried, but I'm sure he, maybe he tried pushing with his feet or whatever, as, as he was pinned. He tried chipping away at the boulder to somehow get his arm free. I don't know if you can imagine the desperation. I would, I can't even imagine, just freaking out in that situation where your arm is just pinned, you got nowhere to go, you're doing everything with your left hand and trying to stay alive. However, he realized that the only way he was going to escape was to amputate his arm. So he experimented with tourniquets, different ropes or bandanas or whatever, on his arm. And he started to make little cuts in his arm, trying to see what he could do. But by day four, he realized something. He was not, he had this generic multi-tool, kind of like a cheap version of a Leatherman kind of thing. And he could not cut through his bone. He needed, he needed to cut through his bone. And so, Day five comes around, he doesn't know what he's going to do, and um, he's drinking his own urine to stay alive. He's desperate. He etches his name on the side of the stone and presumed date of death. He video records, he had a, he had a video recorder with him, camcorder, video records his final goodbyes to his family and resigns himself to death. He wakes up the next morning with something like an epiphany, and, and he thought to himself, I could break the bone using the torque against the, the trapped arm. So in some way, he contorts himself in such a way where he snaps his bone in half. It sounds bad. Watch the movie, and it's even worse to see. He takes his, his, his knife. I know you're like, why are you going over the gory details? It's necessary, trust me. And... He starts to cut away at his arm for an hour with every nerve pain searing through his body. And in the movie, every time he like snaps a nerve, there's like these loud synth- synthesizer and he's screaming and you feel the pain. It's, it's really, it's yikes. Um, but he finally, he gets loose. He climbs 65 feet up with one hand. And he finds a family who's vacationing from the Netherlands, and they help him out, and, and he's alive to this day. But I, I think to myself, what can we learn from such a gruesome story? I didn't watch this for no reason, trust me. I'm going to find some illustration. I, I think it really fleshes out, no pun intended, fleshes out what Jesus was saying. I think about our own pride. Uh, like Aaron Ralston, we think we can go places that we really shouldn't be going. We think that we're strong enough. We think that, that it's okay. Sometimes those places are physical. Sometimes they're mental. We say that we can consistently listen to sexually driven music and watch movies with sexual content and it won't affect us. We think that we can just go clubbing and we're not going to be tempted by the way people dance or dress. We think that we can be alone with our boyfriend or girlfriend and we're strong enough not to take things too far. We think we can float, flirt with someone and it won't affect our marriage. It'll never get out of hand or go too far. We think that we don't ever have to share what we're struggling with, with others. And like Aaron, we push the limits 
without any accountability. So that sexual sin falls on, on, on us like that boulder. Our heart is attached to the sin and we realize that it's pinning us down. And you try to pull yourself out and you think that you're free until you realize you are still trapped in the sin. Days merge into weeks, weeks into months, months into years. And you realize, I am still trapped and I'm dying. Maybe you don't realize that. You're killing yourself from the inside out. Some of you have even given up and resigned yourself to the death. Whatever, it, whatever comes. And, and we try to stay alive when we're into sexual sin. Like, like he was drinking his own urine to stay alive. We settle. Instead of drinking the living water or even eating God's word, we're, we're settling for this poison that, is, that infects our spirit, our heart. We need to take extreme measures. And if you thought that this story was grotesque of Aaron Ralston, just imagine Jesus, just imagine the people around him as he's talking about gouging out your eye and cutting off your hand. I think what he was trying to point out that, first of all, it's drastic. It's like a last resort. The sin has trapped you without hope. You do this or you die. Stop trying to wiggle your arm free. You cannot get free of this sin unless you take this drastic step. You're trying to call out to people. I don't know if you've ever felt this way in sin. You're trying to call out to people, but you realize there's nobody else in the canyon with you. It's painful. What you need to do, the painful things are telling somebody and then getting rid of the things in your life that serve as temptation for this. Remove or safeguard your computer, put a lock on it, give somebody else the code so that, and, and, and have a web, whatever the, the filtering systems and, or get rid of or block certain cable channels. Not just the adult channels, that's obvious, but what about channels that promote sexuality? Break up with boyfriend, your boyfriend or girlfriend if the relationship is just built on sex or find strict accountability, somebody to walk you out of this. But don't think that you're strong enough to do this on your own. Maybe it takes stop going to the clubs or, or even to change jobs if you're tempted by a co-worker or whatever it is. Jesus is saying you must do something drastic or you're going to kill yourself. You're going to do worse. Your heart is already decaying. It's going to start affecting you and those around you. It has long-term effects. It's a lifestyle change. Like Aaron Rawson had to a, had a, um, change his life. He has one arm now. We may have to lose some of our freedom. We may have to lose some of the things that we like to do in order to keep our hearts pure. That's just a cost. But it's worth it. It keeps us alive. And then we need help like Aaron did. We need help because we know that we can't do this on our own. He got out of that canyon. He needed them that. What's interesting about his story, actually, the timing is great. They, the doctor said if he had cut off his arm a few days earlier, uh, he would actually have died of, of loss of blood. But I, I guess since he had lost so much weight, um, he wasn't eating properly, that it was the right time. But still, he still needed to be rushed to the hospital. He still needed help. And so do we. We have to also remember, we cannot have victory over this. 
God has to have the victory. We need to let the Holy Spirit work in our hearts. We cannot do this by sheer willpower. We try all the time to conquer sin with willpower and it doesn't work. It won't work. It takes surrendering over to Jesus Christ, to the Holy Spirit. If you are enslaved to sexual sin, humbly, or if you're not, let me say this, if you're not enslaved to sexual sin, humbly help your brother or sister. Not look down on them. Not say, oh man, really? I didn't expect that from you. But reach out and help them. We are to confront people, but we're supposed to do it in love. That's how a body works. In conclusion, there's a a YouTube video that went viral. And I've mentioned this before, but it has 68 million hits because there were were these people on a safari and on their video camera, they caught um, this situation where there's a group of water buffalo. And then a pride of lions come and separate the water buffalo and attack the little baby. They pull the baby away near like the river and a crocodile comes out and grabs the baby and the lions fight the crocodile now for this this baby water buffalo and they pull the water buffalo back out and the lions think, oh, we've got this. But then you see in the distance all the buffalo coming back as one and they surround the lions. It's It's like a movie. And they surround the lions and they come up and start attacking the lions one by one, flinging them up in the air with their horns until the baby's free and goes back in. And I feel like Satan is like those lions. He wants to separate us from the pack when we're struggling from sin, struggling with sin. He wants to separate us from the the pack. I believe as as a body of believers, we need to come in and we need to fight for our brothers and sisters who are in sin. We know that God is a God of second chances. We know that his grace is greater than all our sin. And we also know that, that he takes strong stance on sin. When the woman was caught in adultery and brought before him, instead of condemning her, he told her, sin no more. So I think that we're not to cast stones, but rather encourage one another to sin no more. The heart is deceitful. The flesh is weak. But grace is strong, and our God is great. And there is hope for us, and hope for you if you are struggling with with sexual sin. Remember this, for it is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Let's pray. Lord, you you are great, greater than our sin. Greater than the sin that maybe we struggled with for years. We may feel trapped this morning. We may feel helpless, hopeless. We may feel like we're the only one. Lord, that is, those are all lies from, from Satan. I pray that those who are struggling with these things would talk to a brother or sister, one who has their best interests in mind, one that is not also enslaved in the sin but somebody who can really help them get out of it. Lord, we thank you for you. You are so faithful to us. You love us. Lord, you want to see us sin no more. We pray these things in your name. Amen.